Well, thank you, Penny, for that prayer. And good morning, everybody. We're in, a, we're in a Genesis chapter 21. And thank you, Vasily, for the, the reading this morning, too. Before I uh, go into God's word, can I just also pray for us this morning? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you right now and ask that you would open our hearts so that we may receive your word. And that you would grant us all wisdom and understanding so that we can apply your word to our lives today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing in our Genesis series and we're in Genesis chapter 21, as I've just said. We're in the first seven verses. And over the past couple of months, we've been following Abraham's special relationship that he has with God. And it's a special relationship because it's a covenantal relationship. It's a covenant so far based on the grace and promises of God. And as we've followed Abraham's journey, I'm sure we've all noticed that Abraham can at times be a bit of a complex character. Sometimes Abraham shows great faith in his response to the promises of God. Whilst at other times, Abraham just seems to baffle us with some of the decisions that he makes. Now, I'm sure that each one of us is able to identify and relate to Abraham in some respects. But one thing that's really stood out, especially to me, is how time and time again, despite Abraham's actions, whether good or bad, God has always remained true and God has always remained gracious towards Abraham and the promises that he gives to Abraham. However, up to this point, there's still one promise that needs to be fulfilled. And that's God's promise to provide Abraham with a son and that through that son, many nations would come. Now we saw this wasn't an easy promise for Abraham to get his head around in the first place. He hadn't yet had a child when God said he would be the father of many nations. And let's not forget, Abraham was 80 years old when God first made this promise to Abraham. But God was clear, wasn't he? Can you remember that moment when God took him outside of Abraham's tent and showed him the stars in the sky and said, as many stars as there are in the sky, that's how many sons you will have. He said, can you count them? Well, just as there are stars in the sky, that's how many sons you will have. I mean, what an unbelievable promise that was from God. And at 80 years old, Abraham fell down on his face and laughed with joy. But what did Abraham do with God's wonderful promise of a child? Well, like usual, him and Sarah took matters into their own hands and they decide via Hagar, a servant girl belonging to Sarah, that they would have a child. Sarah suggests to Abraham one day, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant Hagar, and by her I will become a mother and bear you a child. And so Abraham agrees. He agrees to have intercourse with Hagar, the slave, and in their own way, they believe this is the best way to fulfill God's promise. Now, I wonder when Abraham looked down upon little Ishmael and then looked up at Hagar the slave and then looked back to his wife, Sarah. Did he really think in his heart of hearts that this was the promised child, the God-honoring child that God had promised him? According to God, this wasn't the promised son. And because of God's abundance of grace and mercy, he visits Abraham twice again to tell him that he will have a special son, a son conceived 
and born and nursed by his dear old wife, Sarah. And today's passage is all about that moment, the moment where God fulfills his promise. And what I want us to see us today in the application of God's word to our lives is three simple things. First of all, I want us to see that God is sovereign in childbirth. God is sovereign in childbirth. Secondly, we're going to see in the application of God's word to our life is that we must be born again. We must be born again. And then third, what I want us to see is when we are born again, we should expect a spiritual transformation. We should expect a spiritual transformation. And so with that introduction out of the way, so to speak, let's get into our passage in Genesis chapter 21 and the first seven verses. We'll be reading the first two verses now. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. At long last, 25 years after God had promised them a child, Sarah is pregnant with Isaac, the promised child that will make Abraham the father of many nations. Before we go any further, I just want you to look at the way this verse is written, because it's almost like a three-part sermon in itself. And if you just look down with me at the page, you'll see that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. First point. The Lord had did to Sarah as he had promised. Second point. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Third point. Three simple points. God says, God does, and God completes his promises. And praise God for that. We can almost finish our sermon there, couldn't we? Let's have some lunch. No, I'm joking. It's a wonderful example of how God works. God says a promise. God does according to that promise. And God completes that promise at the exact time that he said he would. I mean, isn't that amazing? As I was reading this passage, though, I, I was struck with a question and uh, it's kind of gnawing away at me. I mean, why now? Why in God's wisdom was this the perfect moment for 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah to have a child? It's not like God had chosen them in their prime years, is it? And this fact wasn't lost on Abraham and Sarah. 20 years ago, when God first told them of his promise, they both laughed at God. And the question I'm sure they must be thinking too is, well, why now? Why when I'm old? Why when I'm retired from sheep herding and saving lots? Why would God give us a child at this age? Well, I believe this was the only moment that Abraham and Sarah could have had a child. God needed them to make that transformation in their lives from being a laughing, doubting, unbelieving couple to a couple who were totally convinced that God would do according to his word. And that's where we see God expertly using their circumstances and life choices to teach them a lesson. And here's the lesson, we saw it last week uh, via Barnabas' sermon, where once again, Abraham and Sarah, in last week's chapter, they tricked a king. This time it was King Abimelech. And they tricked him into one of their dubious plans where they pretend that Sarah is actually uh, Abraham's uh, sister and not Abraham's wife. And as a result, King Abimelech quite innocently takes Sarah into his household and upon doing this, incurs condemnation from God. Now, can you remember what God did in his grace and mercy to rectify the situation? He said to Abimelech, 
Abraham has to pray for you now. And I want you to notice what happens as a result of Abraham's prayer in the last two verses of the previous chapter in chapter 20. We're looking at verse 17. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I believe this was the lesson that God used to teach Abraham and Sarah a lesson. He was teaching them that he is in complete control. Through prayer, God was able to open the womb of Abimelech's wife. Through prayer, God was able to open the womb of all the women in the house of Abimelech. Why was he able to open their wombs? Because it was him who had closed them in the first place. It's like another object lesson from God. He's showing that he is in complete control and has complete sovereign ability to control childbirth. Now, I believe this was Abraham and Sarah's light bulb moment. If you go back to the moment when Abraham and Sarah had first laughed at God to this moment, I think it's no mistake that having witnessed the miracle in the household of Abimelech, in the very next verse, Sarah is able to conceive and have her own child. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, she conceived him, faith, she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive. What does it mean to receive power to conceive? Well, in verse 1 we read, God visited Sarah. God visited Sarah. Then God did to Sarah. And Sarah conceived because of God's visitation and what God did to Sarah. Now, this was a miraculous conception, brought about and fulfilled entirely by God. Abraham might have played his part in the conception, but it was God who visited Sarah, and it was God who did to Sarah. It was God who breathed life into Sarah's body, and it was God who we see repeating this pattern over and over again throughout Scripture. And Here's the pattern that we often see. A woman, often a barren woman, is promised a child by God. And then through faith, the woman then prays. She gives glory to God. Then God in his power visits the woman and she bears a child. We see this pattern in the births of Samson. We see it in the, in the birth of Samuel. We see it in the birth of John the Baptist. And we see it most powerfully in the birth of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I would argue that all of these women would have been able to go back to Scripture, back to this moment when Sarah was able to uh, give birth to Isaac and would be able to say in confidence, I have faith in God. I have faith in God's, sovereign, sovereign, uh, God's sovereignty over childbirth. And with that said, I'd just like to, uh, uh, to apply our first application point to our lives today, that God is sovereign in childbirth. I think we live in a culture that is completely against God's sovereignty, especially when it comes to childbirth. We think that we have the ability to say who or how or when children will be born, but in reality, Scripture is clear. It's God who's in complete control. I cannot escape the wording of the text that's before us this morning. It's clear as day. God closed the wombs. God opened the wombs. 
God healed the women. God visited Sarah. God did to Sarah. God promised. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16 say this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You know, when God visited Sarah, and God did to Sarah, we can use these verses in Psalm 139 to illustrate how God created Isaac. God formed Isaac's inward parts. God knitted Isaac together in Sarah's womb. Isaac was fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful was God's works. Isaac's frame was not hidden from God when Isaac was being made in secret. Yes, Isaac's conception and birth was a miracle that happened to Abraham and Sarah. And yet, it was also a miracle that happened to Isaac. Every child that is formed by God, that is knitted by God, that is fearfully and wonderfully made by God, whose frames are not hidden from God, who are made in secret by God, all these children are miracles, miracles according to God's sovereign control. Of course, it's true, the miracle of having a child has not been available to all of us, but we must take heart. Each one of us has experienced the miracle of childbirth because each one of us is sitting in church this morning now listening to the word of God as miracles born according to God's sovereign control. There's more. There's more to our physical birth. We should not hold our physical birth as the pinnacle of God's creation or work in us because like it or not, despite God's wonderful works, in our mother's wombs. As humans, we've turned away from God. Because of our human condition, we are born sinners. So whilst we are miracles, yes, our hope is not in our physical birth. Our hope is in our spiritual birth. That moment when we become children of God, born again, children born according to the promise of God. Now that birth is something that all Christians can celebrate in, and that all Christians have hoped for. Verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. At last, little Isaac has been born, and his name Isaac literally means he laughs. He laughs. And what an appropriate name. It's a name that God chose for Isaac 25 years ago, back in chapter 17. Matthew Henry notes that it, Isaac's name is entirely significant, and he lists four reasons why. The first reason, he says, is when Abraham received the promise of Isaac, he, he laughed for joy. Secondly, when, when Sarah received the promise of Isaac, she laughed with distrust. Thirdly, Isaac himself will be laughed at by his half-brother Ishmael, and that's something that we'll look at next week. And finally, as Sarah says, everyone who hears about the birth of Isaac will laugh with her. I want you to notice what Abraham did to Isaac when he was eight days old. As part of the covenantal relationship that God had with Isaac, 
Abraham circumcised Isaac to show that he was also set apart. This meant that the promises and blessings given to Abraham would be passed on to Isaac and in turn would be passed down to Isaac's children and throughout their generations. Now along with the law, this is something that the Israelites have always clung to. They believed that if they were circumcised and kept the law, then they would become children of God even after the promise of the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we, of course, we know that through Jesus Christ, we no longer keep the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision or keep the law. Instead, we cling to that promise of the gospel, that through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, we have been forgiven of our sins, and that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive spiritual blessings and become children of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Know then that it is those who have faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture seeing, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. As Gentiles, those who are not Israelites, our faith in Jesus Christ has allowed us to receive the blessings that were originally due to Abraham and the Jewish descendants. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here we're talking about the relationship between Jesus and the Jews. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. All who welcome the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, as their Lord, are not born of blood of flesh, or the will of man, but are born of God, through their faith. It's no good just relying on our physical birth and saying, it's okay, my parents, they're Christians, they're children of God. That means I must be too. Being physically born makes us physical, physically alive and places us in our parents' family. Whilst being born of God makes us spiritually alive and joins us with our God's family. And this concept flied in the face of Jewish belief. Even Nicodemus, Israel's great teacher, struggled to understand what it truly meant to be born again. Jesus himself said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Which leads us on to our second application point for today. You must be born again. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now what I'm going to attempt to do right now is just read a few passages, and in doing so, 
I hope to show you this simple truth of what it means to be born of water and spirit. And I, and I do hope, across, hope this comes across simply. I pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment this morning. But just listen to the following verses. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And here's the important part. By the washing of and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. As Christians, when Jesus saved us according to his mercy, he did so by the washing of and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Notice those words. Jesus saved us by the washing of and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, water and spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says this, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, Jesus says that Jesus has saved us by the washing of and the renewal of the Holy Spirit within us, water and spirit. And then finally in Ezekiel 36 from verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be made clean from your uncleanliness. And from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Again, the washing of and the renewal of the Holy Spirit within us, water and spirit. Being born of water and spirit really is quite simple. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit washes us and renews us. When we baptise each other, we are giving an outward sign of an inward work that is being done within us. We don't need to baptise people in water and then have a second ceremony where we baptise them in the Holy Spirit. No, we baptise people in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The actual process is being done to us by God and by his Holy Spirit within us. Our baptism ceremony is an outward expression of what's going on within us. The term being born again means that we've been washed and given a new spirit. And from that point onwards, a whole new life begins. A life of faith, a life of repentance, a life of love and obedience towards God. Of course, we will never be made perfect in this life. However, that moment when the spirit enters us he is washing us and renewing us. He's giving us a new heart. That's what sanctification is all about. It's a gradual transformation into the likeness of Christ. Transformation that other people will be able to see. Well, a familiar transformation occurs in Abraham and Sarah when Isaac is born. And what I want you to notice from our next few verses is just how significant the transformation is, particularly the transformation in Sarah. And in verse 5 we read, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. 
What a sign of spiritual health laughter can be. Just look at the transformation of Sarah here. Sarah had once laughed at God, disbelieving his promise of a son, but now Sarah is laughing with God. She laughs with joy in what the Lord has done in her life. She's changed from having a cynical, doubting nature to a woman who praises God for his incredible blessing. She says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Sarah acknowledges the miracle that God has worked within her body. And she's well aware, nobody would have expected this. Who would have said? Notice how she wants everybody to join in with her joy. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Don't know about you, but I wonder, did you laugh when you heard that a 90-year-old lady had given birth to a healthy baby boy? I did. And Sarah wasn't wrong. Praise to be to God, this was a miraculous transformation. But what I want us to see, just how significant this transformation is, what I want us to see is that God hasn't just transformed Sarah spiritually, he's transformed Sarah physically too. We already know that God visited Sarah and has done to Sarah a wonderful miracle in the birth of Isaac. But look at verse 7. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? King James Version translates, translates this a little bit more clearly. He said, it says, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah would given children suck? Pretty archaic way of putting it, but what they're saying is, Sarah has been given the ability to breastfeed. I mean, who would have said that? That 90-year-old lady is now able to do the incredible work of nursing a baby. This change in Sarah is so unlikely, so improbable, and by Sarah's own admission, it's almost laughable. It's certainly unwarranted. I mean, if we think about what Sarah and Abraham, how their behaviour towards God and his promises have been so far, it's not deserved. If this was written of anywhere else within the pages of God, um, anywhere else except for in the pages of God's word, we just simply wouldn't believe it. But of course, we know what God is capable of because we see God transforming people all the time as Christians. And we see God transforming people in the Bible too, even when they did nothing to deserve it. For example, what about Jacob? Why did God side with Jacob? He literally spent his whole life deceiving everyone. And why did God choose Moses to lead the Exodus? He literally had just killed a man. Why did Jesus choose Peter to be his rock on which he would build his church? Peter denied Jesus three times. Why did Paul, why was Paul chosen to spread the gospel throughout the world? Paul used to kill Christians. These are just some of the transformations that we see in the Bible where God completely transforms people. And so our application is really quite simple, that we should also expect a transformation in our lives when we become Christians. Why does God choose to transform people? Why does he turn, 
sinners like you and me into righteous children of God? Why does God give so much for people who deserve so little? The answer is really simple. It's because God loves us. I know some of you might think that I use this verse a few too many times and Christians can use this verse too many times. I've heard it twice so far today. There should be no cliche verses in the Bible. This is a hope that we all believe in. John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who would have said that God would have done that for us? God so loved the world that he created humanity, each one of us in our mother's wombs. And then, seeing how evil and corrupt humanity had become, how our sinful nature had put us out of step with his creation, he still chose to send his only son to die on a cross to save us of our sins. Why did God do so much for sinners like us who deserve so little? I mean, what do we truly deserve? Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, we deserve death. We've all sinned here. For the wages of sin is death. The verse then goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it, but we're all Christians because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are transformed and we're able to have eternal life. And with that, I believe we should pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage this morning, for the reminder that you are sovereign in our life. Thank you for reminding us that we must be born again and that we have this wonderful spiritual joy at the thought of spending eternity with you. Because by your blood and through your spirit, we are washed, we are renewed, and we are transformed so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this week as we show what it means to be Christians in a world that just doesn't trust in your sovereign control. Lord, help us be like lights in the lives of those around us who do not have a light to follow, who do not have Jesus Christ to follow in their lives. Lord, I pray that we would be a witness in your glory and your majesty through your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.